Call from mom. Answer it. Call silenced. Instacart knows nothing gets between you and the game. That's why they make ordering from your couch easy. Stock up today and get all your groceries for the week delivered in as fast as 30 minutes without missing a minute of the game. You have 47 new voicemails. Download the app to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. It's 30 with Murdy with your host, Sweeney Murdy. Welcome back, everyone. On this episode, we talk with one of the two sports stars of the 1980s and 90s, former Minnesota Vikings running back and New York Mets outfielder, D.J. Dozier. In the same era that Bo Jackson knew everything, Deion Sanders was prime time in two sports, Dozier was a two-sport athlete with a little less notoriety, but well accomplished in his own right. D.J. Dozier was a running back at Penn State in the mid-1980s. He rushed for over 3,000 career yards, was an All-American his senior year when he helped lead Penn State to a national championship, and finished eighth in the Heisman Trophy vote. Dozier was drafted in the first round of the 1987 NFL Draft by the Minnesota Vikings. He played parts of four seasons with the Vikings and one with the Detroit Lions. Dozier's two-sport career is a bit strange. He was good enough as a high school baseball player to be drafted in the 18th round of the 1983 Draft by the Detroit Tigers. Probably higher if he wasn't holding a football scholarship to Penn State. Dozier did not play any baseball in college and didn't pick up a bat again until seven years later when he joined the New York Mets organization in the spring of 1990. For the next two years, Dozier bounced between football and baseball and showed some promise as a baseball player. In his first pro season in 1990, Dozier posted an 882 OPS in nearly 500 plate appearances. He earned a brief call-up to the Mets in 1992, though he batted just 191 in 47 at-bats. DJ's baseball godfather was Joe McIlvain, the former Mets executive and general manager who first signed Dozier for the Mets in 1990 and then traded for him two years later when McIlvain was GM of the San Diego Padres. And while Dozier found himself in spring training hitting alongside Tony Gwynn, Fred McGriff, and Gary Sheffield, his playing career never materialized after that. After AAA stints with the Padres and Cardinals, Dozier's sports career ended altogether in 1993. Dozier's two-sport ability is part of the story we explore here. After that, we discuss a book he authored in 2018 called Decide to Dominate. It's in the inspirational life coaching genre and hits on some principles I've explored as well, how and when people decide to take their talents and become not just good, but great. 
I first met DJ at a book signing on the Penn State campus in 2018. I reconnected with him last month after reading some passages in his book that hit home to me. On life as a two-sports star and some principles of sports that apply to anyone in real life, here is my conversation with DJ Dozier. DJ, the first thing I want to ask you is you had been away from baseball for a good number of years, concentrating on football. Four years in college, a few years already in the NFL. You were drafted out of high school in 1983. You decided to give baseball a shot again in 1990. Uh, what made you go back to the sport then? Yeah, great question. So um, a little bit of background. You know, at Penn State, I was actually supposed to play both sports. And part of the deal with Paterno, or at least Paterno came up with the deal, um, was that my first year that I would spend the entire year playing football, and then after my second season of football, then I could participate in baseball. And so, unfortunately, after my second season at Penn State, I had to get uh, surgery. And um, it wasn't it wasn't major <clears throat> major enough, I I would say though, to uh, keep me from playing baseball. At least it, from my perspective, I wanted to just focus on rehab and and be ready for my junior year uh, football. And so I ended up not playing baseball after that season. And then I had a conversation with the baseball coach and some of the players, some of the baseball players, about joining them in 85. You know, it dawned on me that I was just a step away from the NFL. And um, and so I unfortunately declined to play baseball. And that was my last shot to play. And so I end up not playing at Penn State. And, you know, what's funny is when I got drafted by the Minnesota Vikings in 87, the World Series, the Twins were playing the, the um, St. Louis Cardinals yeah. the World Series. And so it, it's funny because during that time, I had reporters actually asking me about baseball. I read, uh, you know, articles hey you know have you ever thought about playing baseball and I said well you know not really I said but you know I think I could do it if uh, you know I have to get some rust off and um, so what happened was I ended up going to the World Series and ended up getting uh, tickets Um, so after the first first game I mean what an amazing experience Uh, because you know where I'm from here in Virginia the closest we had to a, a major league team was a triple A team here called the Norfolk Tides. And they were affiliated with the Met. And I knew the folks at Dave Rosenfield, president of the minor league team. But anyway, so I would go to the World Series. I go to game one, have an incredible experience. And I believe it was at game two that I'm watching the game. And I just have this thought. And the thought was, I can do this. Or I was actually looking down at the batter and I said, I can do that. And that's the thought I had. But that experience left me with this taste uh, of playing. You know, the atmosphere. I mean, it was just exciting. What's funny is that thought was, uh, was probably the, you know, the seed that eventually grew uh, because it was years later that um, I, I literally, and I mean this 
every sense of the word. I literally could not stop thinking about it. Um, after the after the football season, I I had to do something. I mean, it was that overwhelming. I mean, it it was like if I didn't do this, that I was going to go nuts. And um, you know, I prayed about it. I thought, you know, many days, weeks about it. And um, eventually, you know, I heard someone say, well, you know, just do it. You know, just do it. And and so I made a phone call to my agent and told him, and he, you know, I tell the story. I said, you know, when I called him, I said, look, I said, hey, Brett, um, I want to play uh, professional baseball. And that's what I heard. Silence. <laughs> like 15, 20 seconds. And then he says, well, what do you want to do that for? And I said, um, I said, I just, I, I have to. I need to do it. And he, he agreed. I said, okay. He goes, well, all right. He goes, look, I know some folks over at the Phillies. Because uh, he actually worked out of uh, Kasha Hocken, uh, PA, where his office is still. Um and he says, you know, I know uh, some other folks in in the in the league. He said, uh, and I said, well, you know, also of course Detroit drafted me. I said, but after two years, they lost my rights, and I think the A's picked it up. So let's get a hold of those two teams. And then I said, also give uh, give Dave Rosenfield um, a call down in Tidewater. And I said, because Dave always said, hey DJ, don't forget about baseball. Don't forget about baseball. I don't care how many years. Don't forget. And uh, so lo and behold, he called Dave and Dave said, listen, I'm going to get back to you. I get back to you. So Dave, we found out later, then called Joe McIlvain. And I don't know if you know that name. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so he, he called Joe Mack and Joe Mack said he wants to play baseball. Uh, he, yeah, he wants to at least try. And uh, he says, listen. I'm the guy that scouted him in Tidewater. I still have his scouting report. Wow. And uh, he says, absolutely, we'll give him a shot down here. Um, so whatever he wants to show up. And so that's that opened the door for me to uh, go down to St. Lucie, Florida, and uh, try out with the Mets. This is an era, DJ, where you're talking about 1987. Bo Jackson has already made the jump. He is now playing both sports. Uh, we're a couple of years away from Deion Sanders doing both. Um, other guys had to make a choice. John Elway made a choice and, uh, and, and chose football. But it's not the norm. You know, what kind of – you said your agent was on board and the Mets were gung-ho about it. They obviously knew you were a football player. What kind of resistance did you meet to trying to become a guy who didn't just – Make the choice. I'm going to play this rather than this. This is about trying to do both at the same time. Yeah, no, great question. So what's interesting is when we started contacting the teams, and one of the teams I left out was the Minnesota Twins. And so sure enough, I thought, you know, they would at least have something positive to say. And it was just the opposite. Wow. Uh, they, uh, I think when my agent spoke to their GM or whoever he spoke to, they pretty much it as a publicity um, that I was just doing it um, you know and obviously they didn't understand the background uh, my background of baseball um, and you know so that that did happen 
uh, even some of the players from the Minnesota Vikings uh, had some negative comments. Um, and I and I understand, you know, why they were saying it. You know, they they felt like I, I should be my offseason preparing for, you know, the football season right. ra- rather than playing baseball. Uh, but, you know, of course, you know, in my mind, um, I, I had to do this. I, this was, you know, this was a it, what it would actually what it became is a, a dream. It wasn't a dream before. You know, I thought it was gone. And, you know, there I was sitting in, in, in the stadium watching a World Series and then, you know, the lights went on. Um, but there wasn't a lot of resistance. You know, my dad did say to me, he said, well, you know, in doing this and going after this, just make sure you don't, you don't forget about the kids. And what he meant by that is, you know, giving back and spending time, you know, giving back in areas rather than, you know, moving in directions that may or may not be prosperous. But uh, not not a whole lot of resistance, and, and quite frankly, I mean, it wouldn't have mattered. Um, I was always taught that no matter what anybody says or thinks, um, you know, you take what you believe and have, and you make something of it. What's funny is when I made up my mind that I was going to do it, I stopped wondering if I could, and then started planning how it was going to happen, and. Um, course now that's that's in the mind when i officially got there it was a whole nother story yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was quite an experience because my first when i first got to st Lucie, my first batting practice literally was going against uh like good <laughs> and um now he wasn't throwing 100 percent yeah uh, but he was throwing hard yeah uh but he was on he was on rehab okay and so they thought that would be a perfect situation, you know, to uh, have me go against his um, his strong arm. That was my first BP uh, when I got uh, when I got to St. Louis. Wow! Uh, do you remember how it went? Yeah, it went pretty well. Matter of fact, it's funny because, um, <laughs> well, you know, when I was back in Minnesota training, and that's a whole other story, because I was trying to do it in incognito. Yeah. Um, and so I walk into this facility, uh, this gentleman, his name's uh, Steve Sagdahl, and he, he had a facility. He was the, the lead trainer, and he he was also the former baseball coach for the University of Minnesota. So he was running this facility. And so I walk in and, and you know, announce my name is William and um, that I just wanted to you know, get some exercise and, you know, hit a few balls, throw some, throw some. And, um, and after like the third day, a fourth day, I me coming in, he said, Hey, let me ask you a question. Like, what are you trying to achieve? And I said, I said, well, and then I said, you know, I need to tell this guy something. I said, well, you know, actually, um, I am, um, I want to try out. And he says, Oh, okay, cool. He says, so when's the last time you played? And I said, uh, well, almost seven years ago. <laughs> he said, oh, <laughs> he says, well, he goes, listen, my suggestion to you is before you do that, why don't you play like an independent league and sort of move into that, into that level? And I said, uh, I can't do that. I said, I got to try out with the Mets in three weeks. <laughs> he goes, oh, he says, well, look, I tell you what, I can't teach you everything in three weeks, especially. He said, but. 
I will, I can at least get you to a point where you look like you know. Mm-hmm. And um, so that was his goal. That, you know, even if I didn't know what I was doing, <laughs> that I would look like I knew what I was doing. So there I was in the batting cage against Doc, and and one of the instructors, as I'm approaching the ball, he goes, "Man, look at him." He says. I mean, he knows what he's doing. And in my mind, I'm thinking, if he only knew. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I don't know what I'm doing. I, I'm curious. I want to get into the training aspects of it in a minute. But I'm just looking at your minor league numbers, your first season in the minors. Now, this is you're 24 years old playing. You uh, crossed two levels, A and AA in 1990 with the Mets. Yep. And as you mentioned, it's been seven years since you played baseball of any kind really other than trying to train for it in that short period of time but you had almost 500 trips to the plate and in modern looking at it with modern metrics you had an incredible first season especially for having spent so much time away you hit over 300 you your on base was almost 400 you drew 61 walks so you had an idea at the plate of balls versus strikes you struck out 100 times, which back then I'm sure sounded like a lot. But today, versus 60 walks, it really doesn't. And you slugged almost 500. You had 10 triples, 15 homers, 16 doubles. I mean, you were making an impact on the ball. You had an idea of the strike zone. And you had, you know, for coming from football, you had some pretty incredible durability. You, had, you played 122 minor league games. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's a pretty remarkable season for anybody playing minor league baseball, let alone somebody who hadn't played in seven years. Yeah, well, the thing about baseball in this area, meaning Tidewater, um, baseball was big. Uh, my high school back in the 80s, um, in late 70s and 80s, I mean, they were one of the powerhouses uh, in the state. Um, so baseball in our area was and, – and so, you know, what happens with that is instructions. Instruction or coaching is at a, at a high level as well. Okay. And so I was fortunate. And there's I – can, I can pinpoint – I mean, there's a lot of – I mean, number one, my father, you know, uh, and always inspired me, uh, no matter what. And he's a huge sports fan. You know, he'll watch anything sports. So he spent a lot of time with me. Uh, baseball, football, basketball, it didn't matter. And so going back to, to high school, right before my junior year, uh, there was a gentleman on our team, his name's Paul Chowns, and his father, uh, you know, I guess saw some things uh, in me and, and said, look, come to my house on Saturday. I want to teach you how to hit the ball to the opposite field. And so... No one had ever taught me anything. I never even heard that. And so went to his house and literally spent, I don't know, three or four hours in, his, in their batting cage. And this man taught me how to hit the ball, uh, how to take that outside pitch to right field. Now, you know, if you don't learn that and you go through your career, whether you make it to college, pros, whatever, uh, that's a huge hindrance uh, as a hitter. You know, Rod Carew, I mean, that guy could yeah. spray it all over the place, right? But he had to learn how, you know, as a to hit the ball to opposite field, you've got to hit it deeper into the zone. You know, you can, if you're out front, more than likely it's going to be a grounder somewhere and you're normally out, right? Um, so learning that part of the game at the plate was an absolute game changer for me because – I mean, I was already a good hitter, 
But that put me over the edge. Mm -hmm. uh, my next season, you know, with maturity as well as ability at the plate, uh, I, I hit 450. And then my senior year, um, I ended up hitting 500. And so <clears throat> I, I was, I was a, a, a good hitter, but I had great instruction growing up. Uh, and, and, you know, you can't you, – I mean, you look at the guys that, are, that come out of high school, that come out of college, that are ready. And most of those guys – and I learned this watching baseball. But most of those guys have had – you know, for example – we, if we play 18 games in Virginia, high school season, and then we end up playing another 25 or so games in the, you know, the league, the, the, the local leagues uh, in the summertime. Okay, so that's roughly, you know, 40, 50 games. Well, in California, those guys play, you know, those hundreds, yeah. you know, 150 games in that same year uh, because of the, the weather. And so uh, what, I, what, I, what I end up getting was repetitions. And that's what Mr. Challenge helped me. I mean, at the end of that, at the end of that day um, in the batting cage, I, I knew how to hit the ball to the right field. And, again, that, that was a game changer for, for me. Uh, and, and it showed uh, in my batting average. What kind of a physical toll does it take when you're spending – several months of the year playing professional football in the NFL and then playing, you know, high level, double AA, A, triple A baseball. And not just, you know, this isn't, you're spending a summer playing 30 games. You're playing full seasons, practically a minor league baseball too. Um, what kind of a physical toll does it take on you? Uh, how does your body feel going from one to the other? Uh, what kind of, what kind of training did you have to do to make sure you didn't sacrifice one sport for the other sport? The most telling uh, issue in, in terms of going from, from baseball back to football, and I, I learned this lesson after the first year of playing, uh, really after the first year of trying out. The most telling issue was the workout program um, because during the baseball season, you can't work out for football. And that was that 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 hurt me in that that following year in, in '90, I think, uh, at least in terms of physical preparation for football. Um, in terms of going from football to baseball, you know, not so much. You know, simple transition. Okay. Um, you're not doing as much lifting; it's more flexibility. Uh, although, you know, today and even back. Uh, back then, in the in the early '90s, is when baseball started to believe in a little more weightlifting. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. You know, because for years, for many years, like you don't want to get near weights, right. make you too tight. You know, you become bulky and this and that, and less flexible. And um, uh, so, by '90 '91, I I learned how to prepare myself for football coming out of baseball. And so I would do a little more lifting, not, a, not heavy lifting, but at least something just to maintain something. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, now, was I 100% prepared in terms of physical strength and endurance for football? No. Um, but I was living my dream of yeah. playing both. And, um, you know, so I, but I did learn how to, you know, make some modifications. But that was really the biggest challenge is that that. that 
that level of preparation for the weight training. When you got your cup of coffee in the big leagues in 1992, um, it was it wasn't a great sample. You know, it wasn't mm-hmm. a it wasn't a large sample. You got a little bit of time. You played twenty five games. You came to bat fifty four times. What I mentioned earlier didn't get a chance to really shine through in such a small sample and at the higher level. Your plate discipline, your hitting for power, those types of things didn't show up uh, in um, forty seven at bats, four walks, nineteen strikeouts. Two extra base, nine hits, two extra base hits. So your your major league numbers pale in comparison to what your minor league potential showed, and you only had that one small sample. You experienced what it was like taking you know the speed of the game going from college to NFL. What was the speed of the game like going from minor league baseball to major league baseball? Oh my goodness, let me tell you. Um, what a what a difference! Hmm. What a gap! I learned I learned a bunch, but there are a couple of things that I remember. Our, our hitting instructor with the Mets, uh, the big league, he would always say, "He said, listen, in the in the big leagues, you have to be able to hit the fastball." And I'm thinking, well, yeah, everybody hits the fastball. He says because a real hammer or a curveball, you, you're not going to hit it. Now I grew up through high school um, hitting everything. So that philosophy didn't make any sense to me. And I actually rebelled against it mm. until my first yeah, in the big leagues. Yeah. And I saw that hammer he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> and I stepped out of it. I st- it was against Cincinnati. The, we were, and we were in, I think, uh, uh, Three Rivers. Um, I stepped out of the box. You know, of course, no one could tell, but I'm thinking in my mind. Are you kidding me? Yeah. That's the hammer he was talking about. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, when I saw that hammer, uh, I I then realized what why Tommy the, the the hitting instructor said, "Whatever you do, do not swing, <laughs> because if you swing, you miss royally. That's all you're going to see the rest of your career." <laughs> <laughs> That's so thank goodness I didn't swing. I ended up getting a fastball. I hit it to the shortstop. Uh, uh, now I ended up getting on base because I, I beat it out. But it was a ruled in an error because I guess he bobbled it. Okay. There's no doubt that the the difference between the minors, minors to the majors, there's no real comparison from college to well. I mean, it's a big gap, but that gap in baseball is incredible. And, and quite frankly, you know, in the major leagues, you need at least somewhere between three and 500 at-bats mm-hmm. to at that level. Right. You know, because, again, you're practicing at this level. You're not ready for that level. And no matter how much practice you have at this level, you'll never be prepared for that level. Uh, you have to get big league at-bats in order to become a big league hitter. And um, because it's night and day, it's almost like a different game. Uh, definitely, I mean, you're talking about guys that can put two, three, four pitches wherever they want, uh, and versus, you know, in the minor leagues and, you know, to test that theory, when I got back to the minor leagues, it was literally the first or two, it was like taking candy from a baby. <laughs> I mean, I'm thinking that's your curveball, you know, <laughs> versus what I saw, yeah. that's your slider. 
you know, that's your change up. Um, and it, it, so it really opened my eyes. Unfortunately, in my, you know, obviously in my career, I didn't get enough at bats. See, I was actually, I got injured uh, mm -hmm. before I got called up to the Knicks. And I hurt my knee toward the middle, middle of the season. And um, technically, I shouldn't have played. Okay. But I wanted the big league experience. Sure. And so what happened was Jeff Torberg was our manager with the Mets at the time. And after that, like that, I don't know, I don't, about the 20th game or so, um, he said, look, I can tell you. I mean, I was literally icing after every game. I was, you know, my, my, my knee, I had torn my posterior cruciate early in that season. And so I was still in recovery. Um, and um, he finally said, look, I'm going to sit down because, you know, I, I was limping around the, the bases. Um, so, <clears throat> so I ended up not getting enough at bats there. And, um, I think what happened was, I think the injury was, was severe enough for the management to make me part of that package that traded, traded me to, uh, Padres mm -hmm. and with Joe Mack was. I want to ask you about the, uh, couple of things that I saw in your book and I purchased this book when I met you at, on campus a couple of years ago, I hadn't really cracked it open, but the, the title called out to me from my bookshelf because very recently I've, I've crystallized this idea in my head that mostly I see it with athletes, but I think it applies in a lot of areas of life too. And I, it, maybe I subconsciously took this from your title too, but it was, I have this idea that an athlete has talent. A lot of athletes have talent, but there comes a moment in their lives and their careers when they have to decide for themselves they want to be great. You know, they have to take that extra step because the talent is in there, but there is a certain extra gear that only the player can really decide to bring out. A lot of times when potential isn't reached, blame goes towards coaches or opportunities or different things. But I feel like in the end, there's something inside of the athlete that has to come out to make him great and take all the other stuff out of the equation. You know, forget about other people's thoughts or decisions. Your performance will dictate. Well, the title of your book is called Decide to Dominate. And I wonder if, before I ask you about a couple of quick passages, I wonder if what I'm describing sounds similar to what you kind of thought about when you decided to lay this out in book form yeah so uh, n without a doubt um and and i was very 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 fortunate growing up you know number one having a father that understood hard work and 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 worked hard all his life you know a uh, teenager and certainly as an adult uh, my mom the same way um, so I, I grew up in a home where hard work was normal. A lot of homes like that, right? Mm -hmm. um, and but also inspiration, normal. Anytime I asked my parents a question, they always gave me a positive answer. Um, Mom, can I do this? Oh, absolutely. I mean, so there was always reinforcements. I never had any doubt from that perspective. Um, there's also times in your development, whether it's when you were young 
uh, or age or, or over, uh, something has to happen. Something has to turn on or it doesn't get turned on. And so early on, um, and I didn't, I didn't know how good I was I, until I was 12 years old. That, that particular year I had to play because I was a pretty big kid. Uh, so at 12, I was 138 pounds. And so that took me away from most kids that were 12. And I had to participate in a, with a team in a league where, you know, guys were anywhere from 14 to 16. Matter of fact, I remember one of my teammates used to drive the, drive the practice because <laughs> <laughs> he was 16. And, and uh, so there I was, a 12-year-old, and I ended up becoming uh, the starting uh, running back. Um, but let me tell you, I, I went through some, some pretty interesting, and I would say tough times. I, I don't know. I don't remember – I couldn't say why the coach did it, but, you know, maybe they were trying to make me tough. I don't know. Um, but for a 12-year-old to play with, you know, at that point, in my mind, these guys were men, yeah. right? It, I mean, that's a, that was a tall task. And and so my coach did his did the things that he thought were necessary to make me tough, uh, even though I was a kid. And then I remember that one of the games, it was a night game, and I made a spin move on somebody and ended up taking it to the house. And again, I'm 12. And for me, I that's when I realized that I have this talent. Mm. You know, because if I can compete, I mean, you know, you, you to do that against a 12-year-old, another 12-year-old or 11-year-old, you know, yeah, I mean, you have some talent. But to be able to do that against people that are, you know, two, three years, four years older than you, that's a whole nother thing. And so I, that in my mind, I, it, it hit me like, man, you know, you, you, you have some talent. And, uh, you know, I was never, thank goodness, uh, never conceded. My parents wouldn't allow that. My dad, especially. Uh, I mean, he, even when I got in high school, you know, started getting a lot of attention. Um, you know, he said, look, no matter what, you got to remember, this is a team sport. And you don't go anywhere without the line and the quarterback on his job and so forth and so on. So give give credit where credit is due. And uh, so he always reminded me to to you know when it came to talking about different things as related to the game or games that it was always about everybody else. You know, yeah, I had, I did my job, but everyone else did their job. That's why we ended up you know where we did. And, uh, and I've always thought that way. So um, as it relates to, to the book, um, that's the way I grew up. You know, I grew up where if you see something or you see something, then you seize it. I literally woke up one morning and I heard the words, sort of two-prong. I mean, it, it's a message, but it was also... I mean, it was a message to the outside world, but it was also a message to me that you may have achieved certain things over here and over there and over there, uh, but there's still so much more to do. And you, you and all, the only way you're going to do it is you've got to decide what you're going to do. And you've got to put yourself in a position um, to, to achieve greatness and, and 
really, at the end of the day, to achieve all that God wants. I want to highlight a couple of things specifically that I think are really important and meaningful. I want to get your, your take on, on what this is all about. Um, success, and, and again, this applies not just to sports, but it applies to life and business and any other field. And you cite a lot of examples of that, too, of people that you've run across in your, your life and in business, too. But one part I took about this is you know, we hear a lot about process in athletics and uh, athletes going through what, you know, endless practice to to get to where they want to be the idea is that success is a process and you articulate that here when you say success and failure are at times processes of doing small tedious tasks the right or wrong way every day that helps you achieve what you desire or what you do not desire success is never an event it is an unfolding process of small actions that may seem insignificant, but they lead up to a person of character or not, good health or not, or a person who is prepared to succeed in business and life or not. It all seems to be, um, you, you seem to be telling everybody that it's all a very conscious effort. It's all about effort. And, and well, you know, here's what's funny. So, for ter- I mean, we've all heard the term practice makes perfect, mm-hmm. you know, especially if you've been involved in any, le- any level of sports. Practice makes perfect. Well, Paterno sort of added to that, and he would say it's perfect practice that makes perfect. Mm. And so the process of practicing is certainly valuable, but the process of per- practicing to be perfect, the process, you're going to have moments when you 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 you're moving in the right direction. You're gonna have moments when you you fail, uh, but that overall process of practicing, you're learning from each experience, and so being able to practice with, with perfection in mind, it causes you to to start to examine the details of that process. So another example, another paternal example. So in, in, in practice, we would have, you know, obviously you practice on certain things. Well, his practices were literally, and I mean this literally, scheduled by the minute. Hmm. And, and if we were going to spend six minutes on fundamentals, it would be from, literally, it would be from 1035 to 1041. And I'm and my, and I remember looking at the schedule one day. I'm thinking, why wouldn't we just go to 10:45, right? <laughs> you know, or 10:50. Yeah. Um, but what I believe what he was signaling is, in any process, you have to be you have to look at the details. The only way that you can create a perfect process is by examining the details and working in each one of those details. For example, each minute mattered. Mm-hmm. And so now, were there times when you had to stretch <clears throat> that six minutes to six and a half? Yes. Seven? Absolutely. Um, but it was noted. We need, in order to be ready for Saturday, we need six minutes of fundamentals all four of these days. And, you know, maybe on Thursday, instead of six, it's going to be seven. But, you know, roughly it's going to be 24 to 26 minutes. 
And when you start to examine, I, I mean, that was phenomenal to me. Hmm. Uh, and I, you know, I examined it a little bit while I was in college, but when I reflect back to it, I really, you know, I've looked at that and I think that's, that's, that's it. Being, being able to not just go through a process and, and think about perfection. And, you know, I, w- I do want to add a little bit more to that. I mean, you have to give your ch- yourself the, the opportunity to fail, right? I mean, you, I mean being perfect is not, is not putting pressure on yourself. It's, it's a destination. It's a bullet point. I mean, it's a, a bullseye. And just because you missed the bullseye, you know, that doesn't give you the right or shouldn't give you the right to become deserved. Uh, you should learn why you missed the bullseye and allow that to add to the, the details of what happens next. And you continue to compile. I mean, it's no different than Thomas Edison. And I talk about that. You know, how he continued to try to find in, in ways to invent certain things. And, um, you know, when someone asked him, how does it feel to fail over in our times, he, he responded in a different manner, right? Yeah. We know how he responded. He said, I haven't failed. I've successfully found 1200, over 1,200 ways how it doesn't happen. <laughs> right? So, uh, you know, but be, being able to focus on the process and the details of that process is 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 changing. The other one that kind of jumped out to me is it relates to advice that I often give when people ask me about, you know, careers in media and getting to certain places. Um, We all have high aspirations, but one of the things I tell people is um, you're not going to jump to it right away. Say, do the job you're given, do it well, and people will notice. Um, Because, you know, it's we all want to get to the top. But right. don't appear to be above the job that you have now because other people hold those positions. And it's just going to take the natural process of, of time to get to where you want to be. And mm-hmm. you call it taking responsibility for the mail. You write, if you're in the mail room, do not take responsibility for the entire company. Take responsibility for the mail. Do it with excellence and connect to how you are doing your job affects the company. Dominate in the mail and accept dominion over your area. Dominion is ownership as it relates to the position and is responsible for that portion. A person who shows themselves faithful in even the smallest things can be trusted with larger things. I think it's a wonderful piece of advice. Yeah, and, and, and that's, that's biblical uh, wisdom, right? Uh, before you can be given, uh, you know, 10 things, you start with one, maybe even a half and, and become successful at that. And, and, and again, it goes that part of being successful is being able to focus. We know, we know that. Yeah. And how can you focus if you're trying to do your job and then trying to do someone else's job or, you know, other people's jobs. And so being able to focus on the tedious job and then mastering that allows you to to expand you know as the the bible says to expand your borders right i mean you this is like starting a franchise right you don't start off with five locations yeah you start off with one and you build a system so that you can build on that system beyond that right i mean let's face it how many how many well i know in my in my little bit of investigation uh, the best CEOs are the ones that started in the mailroom. 
you know, are the ones that started at the ground floor of the company because they understand every aspect of the business. And it allows them to feel the weaknesses and the, the you know, have a heart for the people that are in other positions, especially those, you know, that are down below. Because, you know, let's face it, as one of, one of the things that happens at, at, at some companies is the executives have no connection to what's going on in, in, in the heart of their business. And so they're making decisions that are based on up here and, and not reflected uh, from the customer or reflected from their own, what I call the internal customer, their employees, right? If you're not hearing them, I mean, all the way down to the bottom, then your output, your strategies, your execution, potentially uh, be detriment and certainly uh, hinder. DJ, first of all, thank you for all this time. Uh, I, there's so much more to talk to you about at some point in time. Maybe we get to do this again. But the last thing I want to ask you about is I think it's pretty clear um, statistically you had more success in football than you did in baseball. But I'm wondering which sport taught you more. Oh, boy. Uh, definitely baseball because um, it's it's more individual. You know, it's a team sport, but, you know, you're at bats individual at bats and um you know again team and you're part of the team <clears throat> but you know the things that you you can learn so often um in football you know the way i look at it at least at least from my position uh, is very much instinctual it's all about instincts um it's not necessarily now you learn how to play at that level yes um but it's it's instinctively react and in baseball is such a you have to develop skill and uh you know high levels high level skill um for that matter and and again it's it's such a you know of course i'm, I'm focusing in as a hitter everyday player not a pitcher but it's the same thing for a pitcher i mean every pitch you know n maybe not so much every pitch but certainly every game uh, these guys have to learn uh, from not, not not to say that you don't learn from every game in football, but it just there's there's a I, I guess there's there's a there's a level of detail in my opinion that uh, that's more expressed in baseball uh, and certainly more monitored uh, in baseball um, uh, in football at least you know from an everyday player and even you know errors right I mean you know. Now, of course, in football, as a running back, you have fumbles. That doesn't happen very often. It shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but in, in baseball, you don't get to you do know, it. You keep doing it if it happens a lot. Exactly. No, that, exactly. Yeah. You don't want to do it either. Uh, you know, because you get all the boos. I mean, who wants to hear 80,000 people booing you if you, you fumble three times in a game, right? <laughs> um, but uh, yeah, I mean, in, in baseball, it's just. I, I don't know. I, I've always saw baseball as uh, a greater challenge. Um, and certainly uh, going from the, as I mentioned earlier, going from the minor leagues to the big leagues, from an athletic standpoint, greatest challenge I've ever experienced. I, I mean, just bar none. Just incredible. 
My thanks to DJ Dozier. His book, Decide to Dominate, is available in paperback on Amazon. If you're new here, or if you've missed some of our previous episodes, please check out the archive at radio.com or at Apple Podcasts. You can hear recent conversations like the one I had with former Mets pitcher Bill Pulsifer, one of the poster children for pitch counts and innings limits in the modern game. Also, a chat with Karate Kid screenwriter Robert Kamen for his thoughts on the Netflix series Cobra Kai. Go back and listen. Also, subscribe and review and all that jazz. And until next time, I'm Sweeney Murdy. Thanks for listening. This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance, too, with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. You could spend the weekend doing the same old whatever, or you could conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey.